how we can develop our relationship with Krishna. Uh, interestingly, it's not so different from developing your relationship with any normal person. If you think about it, um, relationships should be appropriate. There should be mutual respect, and actually Krishna does respect us um, because he's given us free will. You know, sort of given us the keys of the car. And um, I, oh, I just gave a class about an hour and a half ago in, uh, in Portuguese, actually. To, we have a Krishna West Center. That's uh, opening up. <laughs> In uh, southern Brazil, southern Brazil, sort of the most, it's sort of like uh, southern Europe's most European part of Brazil, and uh, probably the most single most important city, perhaps in southern Brazil, is um, Porto Alegre, of course, also Curitiba. And uh, so we were speaking on different topics, and um, what they asked me to speak on, which is relevant to our topic tonight. Uh, is the fact that the, our bodies are born and die, uh, the re and how we should respond to that in Krishna consciousness. Uh, they asked me to speak of that because in their community, uh, some the devotees had suffered a loss. One mother lost her son, and another devotee lost uh, their mother, and so on. Just in the last... Um, I suppose fairly recently, and so they wanted me to speak on that. And so, um, when you to love someone and not simply to fall in love with the false image you have of them, which happens a lot in various kinds of relationships, but to actually love someone for who they really are, uh, you have to know them. You have to actually know who they are and, and how they treat you, how they act toward you, and whether you feel the way they act toward you is justified or or not, or whether it shows real love or something else. And so, because we make the claim that Krishna creates this world, uh, I mean, God creates the world, so we have advanced understanding as Krishna, but the idea that there is a God that creates the world is, is sort of a universal idea. So since God creates the world, we can look at the world and look at our place within the world and what's happening to us. And then, of course, naturally, we try to understand, can I, without any reservation, love the person that made this world and, and put me in it based on what's happening to me and, um, and so on. So... It was in that context that uh, we talked about birth and death. One devotee, senior devotee, disciple of mine asked, um, you know, why does Krishna create the world in such a way that our bodies die? Why not create a world in which our bodies don't die? So, I think I mentioned this point, or I can't remember where I was, maybe it was in Phoenix, you know, it's one of those things. Sort of losing track of where I said certain things, but... Um, well, first of all, I'd like to bring up a... Uh, so, just kidding, that's joke. So, um, in Western philosophy, there's a very famous question that Socrates placed to a sort of a self-righteous jerk, uh, and not the only one, named uh, Euthyphro, who thought he was very righteous, but actually was a fool and envious of other people. And 
So anyway, the question in the course of their discussion, Socrates asked Euthyphro, uh, are certain actions that we perform, are certain actions good because the gods love those actions? Is the fact that the gods want us to do something that they love certain acts, does that make those actions good? Or is it the fact that the gods love those actions and reward them because they are intrinsically good? Because those actions are intrinsically good. And of course, it's the latter. It's the latter that... So, Krishna... In order for us to give our hearts fully to Krishna, uh, we must be convinced that Krishna is, to use the philosophical language, a perfect moral agent. As I explained in, in philosophy, agent doesn't mean the person who sells you car insurance. In philosophy, agent means someone who intentionally, consciously does something. And, and therefore is responsible for what they've done. I mean, clearly if someone is mentally impaired or is forced to do something beyond their will, then uh, in either of those cases, a person cannot be held morally responsible. But if you do something intentionally and you are responsible to know what you're doing, in other words, it's not a four-year-old child that intentionally shoots his little sister or something, one of those tragic cases. But it's a case where uh, you can be expected, hey, we're doing philosophy. That's Colleen. <laughs> Just in time for some philosophy. So it has to be the case where um, you are sufficiently conscious to be responsible for what you do. For example, if a person commits a crime, harms another person, and then in, in court says that, well, you know, I didn't know that if I shot that person, it would, it would injure him. That's not a good defense because you should have known that. So Krishna is omniscient. And therefore, whatever Krishna does, he is in perfect knowledge of what he's doing. So this topic is called theodicy in philosophy, or more commonly, the problem of evil. In other words, if there's a God who is good, why is there evil in the world? And so the reason I'm mentioning this in the context of developing a relationship with Krishna is because this is the biggest obstacle to some people to accept that there's a God who is, um, as it's sometimes said in philosophy, a triple O God. Uh, omniscient, that means knows everything, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnibenevolent, or all-good. So, if there's a triple O God, triple threat, then, um, then why is there so much evil in the world? This is called theodicy. Theos in Greek means God, and DK means justice. So, is there justice, perfect justice in the world, under God. And uh, from my philosophy classes, I remember the, uh, the main argument, at least back then, centuries ago when I was a young undergraduate, that the main argument against God, that the atheists, what they thought was their real blockbuster argument, was precisely that there is so much suffering, so much evil in the world, that there cannot be a triple O God. Recently, interestingly enough, in the last decade or two, there, there's a famous uh, philosopher of religion who himself is religious named <clears throat> Alvin Plantinga, who taught for many years at the University of Notre Dame, which has perhaps the, uh, the most uh, prestigious program in American colleges in philosophy of religion. Oh, thanks. So, I mean, he gave various arguments to show that the atheist, atheist argument is not a proof because we can never show that there's not some higher good. But in any case, 
I'd like to explore that because obviously if you put yourself in someone's hands, you want to be sure that person's not going to drop you or that or do something unpleasant to you. And so can you can you fully trust Krishna? Because if not, that obviously is a major obstacle in developing a relationship with Krishna. And so uh, first I'll state a, a general principle by which we can judge the moral quality of anything that anyone does, including God. Not that God is under these laws, but uh, Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita, in the famous text 10.10, that uh, Te Shang, for, for those people, Te Shang, Satata Yuktanam, who are always engaged in Krishna consciousness, Bhajatam, Priti Purvakam, and are worshipping with love, Dadami Buddhi Yogam Tam. I give them that Buddhi Yoga Jina by which Mamu Pajantite they approach me, they come to me. So uh, interestingly, although of course we know Krishna says in many places that we come to him through devotion, but throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna actually gives as a synonym of Bhakti Yoga. Buddhi yoga. And buddhi in Sanskrit means our rational intelligence, our ability to reason well. For example, if you compare two words in the Gita, buddhi and jnana, uh, buddhi being analytic intelligence and jnana knowledge, uh, and Krishna describes both buddhi and jnana in the three modes of nature, jnana and uh, verses 18. 1820-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22-22
not being fanatically for something, fanatically against something or someone, but just being reasonable. And so there is being reasonable in a philosophical sense and then in your practical life. And, and here the word for practical is yoga. Yoga. So Sankhya and yoga used together are something like philosophy and practice. So um, therefore Krishna is inviting us to exercise, apply our intelligence, our reason. And so then in, in this spirit, the question arises, uh, well, first by our reason we can understand that if it's the case that one person knowingly and intentionally because you can know you're doing something, but you can't stop. Like someone push, say someone pushes me, and then I'm falling into you, which I don't want to do. And so I know I'm doing it, but it's not intentional. So it has to be knowing and intentional. So um, if someone knowingly and intentionally uh, causes pain to another person, that can be emotional pain, physical pain, some kind of suffering, some kind of unpleasant or painful experience, and they do it knowingly and intentionally, that person, the person who's causing the trouble to another person, despite doing that, they can be accepted as a perfect moral agent. In other words, someone who is acting morally in every sense, if and only if, they are causing that trouble to another person to bring about in the least, least invasive way, a necessary good. In the least invasive way, a necessary good. For example, uh, when I was a child, a kid, my parents, they were very good parents. And so, you know, I got, I got shots medical shots and I went for, and I remember one time I was, must've been about, um, oh, I don't even know anymore, four years old, five or something like that. And my father took me and my older brother to some little clinic in LA to get some kind of vaccination or some shot. And so my older brother went first. He must've been about, he must've been like six and a half or something. And so they took him into a room, they left the door open. So I was watching, like, what are they gonna do to him? <laughs> Next thing I know, they, you know, his pants came down and a needle came out. And that's all I needed to know. <laughs> and so I just turned around and started running as fast as I could down the sidewalk. I didn't know where I was going, I just knew what I was running away from. And I remember my father came after me. I was just a little kid, so I didn't get very far. My father came after me, picked me up, put me on his shoulder. You know, a very nice way and brought me back into the clinic to get my shot. So my parents were, in fact, acting as proper moral agents because they were acting for what they understood to be a necessary good. And they were bringing about that good in the least painful way possible. Or, for example, let's say you go to a dentist and you expect that the dentist is going to perform a procedure on you you assume the dentist is not just, it's not just a recreational thing. Yeah, I always want to try out my new tools here. I mean, you assume that it's necessary and that the dentist is going to do it in the least painful way. It's not that in the middle of the procedure you say, this really hurts. The dentist says, okay, I just kind of wanted to see what would happen if I didn't give you any, you know, anesthesia. Just, I was just curious, you know, what your pain threshold was. <laughs> so obviously, so now going to Krishna, it must be the case that even though there's a lot of suffering in the world, uh, are we justified in calling it evil? I mean, we can call certain acts that conditioned souls perform, we can say they're evil acts, but is the allowing of these actions, is that in and of itself evil? Is it necessarily evil? that Krishna allows some people to harm other people. And as we know, you know, in terrible ways. And so in order for the atheist argument to be valid, in order for the atheist argument to be valid, that the 
the nature of this world, the amount and the type of suffering that goes on in this world is logically incompatible with the notion of a God who's all good, all knowing and all powerful. The argument is of course, obviously, that if God is all knowing, uh, God knows how much people are suffering. If God is all good, he doesn't want them to suffer. And if God is all powerful, he can stop their suffering. But since the suffering doesn't stop, therefore there cannot be a God who knows about it, who wants to relieve it, and who has the power to do so. And of course, the reason this is not a valid argument is for the simple reason that it is, it's a superficial argument, especially uh, the third part. God certainly does know that there's suffering in this world. He certainly does want to relieve us of our suffering. But the third part of this argument is the, uh, the one that's problematic. And that, that is that God uh, could stop our suffering. The reason that assumption is problematic is because it's just like my father, he could have stopped my suffering from the injection, but then again, what if he was risking or even bringing about a greater evil in the form of a serious illness that would ultimately cause me a lot more suffering. And so, um, Certain things are logically impossible, like, like I've said so many times, like a square circle. You don't have, if I tell you, you'll never guess what I saw on the river walk today, I saw a purple unicorn. Now, if you realize that I'm actually serious about this, you may start to wonder, like, is he okay? Can we help him? But, but let's let's say, for example, I insist, no, I saw a purple unicorn on the river path. And uh, so let's say you go search. You say, okay, we can prove there's no purple unicorns. And you go all over Tucson and you see there's no purple. You, you can even get like a massive search party of like 300,000 people. That, and you say there's no purple, there's no visible purple unicorn in Tucson. So certain things you can try to understand if they're true or not, certain statements, simply by empirical investigation, right? If I say that I can jump 20 feet in the air and you say, oh, go ahead, and then you find out, well, actually, I can't jump 20 feet in the air. So certain things you can find out they're true or not true by empirically investigating them. But other things you know they're not true just by, just by simple logic, just by understanding the definition of words. A point made by Kant, what he called uh, analytic knowledge, things that are true just because of what the words mean. Like if you say all circles are round, that's just what the words mean. You know, circle means something that's round. So, of course, uh, who was it that challenged this? Some philosopher at Harvard named Quine thinks he refuted this, but anyway, I think the philosophers who took him seriously were a little, uh, don't actually understand things. But anyway, so, so just as there cannot be a square circle, this is logically impossible based on what the words mean. Similarly, you cannot have a world in which we have free will, but we cannot do what we really want to do. We can never do what we want. We can't, or we can't do the wrong thing, even though we want to do the wrong thing. You can't, those two things cannot be true, that we, that God gives us free will, that we're persons, and uh, we can't, can't actually choose what we want to do, good or bad. So sometimes people say things which actually make no sense at all. Like, well, why didn't God create the world in, in, in such a way that we can't do bad things? God could create such a world. It would call, be called planet robot. I mean, we would not actually be persons. We would not actually have free will. We would simply be, what would we be? Automatons? 
So the idea that you can have free will and therefore be a person, because if you don't have free will, you're not really a person. Now, even if you can't exercise your will, let's say, for example, someone, God forbid, is a prisoner or has some kind of physical disability or just like me, I can't play, you know, half-court basketball anymore because I'll probably have a... So it'll be interesting to see what I have first, a stroke or a heart attack. But anyway, so there, there are certain things we might like to do, but we just can't do them. However, we still have free will. Our minds are still free. We can desire to do them. We can, or whatever. And, and so imagine a world where you could desire to do bad things. Like you could desire, let's say, to harm another person, but when you go to do it, you actually can't do it. And so you, that's an interesting question. You know, why not create a world like that? There's actually, it was a movie made with Tom Cruise about that called, uh, I forget the name of it, but anyway, it's a sci-fi movie. Minority Report? What? Minority Report? Yeah, Minority Report, exactly. I'm not endorsing the movie, I'm just talking. <laughs> so, so let's explore that. Why not create a world where evil cannot go beyond mental acts? In other words, you can mentally desire to do something bad, and even maybe in your mind fantasize about doing something bad, but you can't actually carry it out. So I have two things to say about that. Number one, it would not serve a necessary purpose. Number two, that's actually the world that Krishna created. So first, number one, if it were the case that you could have bad thoughts like, you know, I want to knock his teeth out, something like that, which would be hard. You'd actually have to kind of work at it for a while to because you know, we have a lot of teeth. But anyway, so if someone had a bad thought, but in the moment of doing it, you couldn't actually do it, then you wouldn't, you couldn't really understand the evil you'd done. And of course, let's say the person who was attacked in a past life attacked someone. So in terms of what are called sanskaras in the yoga system, these deep mental impressions, um, they would never actually, you could never actually progress psychologically or morally because you would never really understand what you were doing. That doesn't mean that some people have to suffer just so you can you know, learn some interesting psychological points because the people that get it deserve it. But, but also, in a higher sense, that world in which you can only perform mental evil, you can't actually carry it out, is actually the world that Krishna created for the simple reason that we are not the body. And therefore, no one actually has the power to harm another soul. Although, of course, when our bodies are harmed, uh, that's serious. I mean, I mean, we suffer, but, but we suffer to the extent that we are falsely identifying with our bodies. That doesn't mean that we feel no compassion for people that are suffering. Obviously, suffering is suffering. Even if someone brought it on themselves, we still feel bad about it. We still want to help them and try to relieve their suffering by bringing them to Krishna consciousness. But, but Krishna has actually placed over every soul in the material world a virtual reality machine. And what's really happening, there's another really good movie called um, How Do I Know These Things? <laughs> because gurus know everything. Or they're know-it-alls, one of those two. But anyway... There's a very good movie called Surrogate with Bruce Willis, who, by the way, uh, bought one of Prabhupada's Gita's and was really interested in it and wanted to talk about it with the devotee. But um, in the movie Surrogate, it's, it's, it's a sort of a somewhat dystopian, futuristic sci-fi movie, not too far in the future, where private corporations have developed the surrogates. They're sort of like robots, but extremely lifelike, you can't really tell them apart from real people. And what people do is they just live their lives in their houses or in a room. And they're, of course, they, you know, they have all these sensors on. And so they're experiencing whatever their surrogate is experiencing. And you can be anyone you want. You know, you can, you can have the beautiful face you always wanted but never got. You know, you can, you can have the physique you want. You can have the figure you want. So, Everyone, you can just have any body you want. And so 
it's what happens is out in the world, the actual people or the actual human beings, everyone's in, at home, indoors, strapped up to their surrogate, and yet it looks like the real world. People are walking around, they're talking, everything's going on, commerce and government and recreation, everything's going on, but it's really just these surrogates. And so in a sense, that's what Krishna created. Because the world we see, of, you know, everyone's walking around, talking, everyone's doing things. Actually, it's really just souls sitting inside these machines and, and just kind of driving them, but becoming so absorbed in their surrogate identity, which is the body, that they've completely forgotten who they are. It's, it's like people go to a costume party and forget they're at a costume party. And they forget, and, and they don't take their costumes off and they think that's who they really are. So that's the world that Krishna created. Another point I made in this uh, in the class I gave to Brazil is that um, it's false to think that God punishes or rewards anyone in this world. That's another weakness in the atheist argument. Krishna specifically says in the Gita that nadate, uh, which means I do not accept, in the sense of I don't take responsibility for. Na adate. Na adate kastyachit of anyone, papa, their sinful activities. I don't take responsibility. I don't take responsibility for anyone's bad acts. Naiva nadate kastyachit papam naiva sukratami, nor anyone's good acts. So all of our enjoyment and suffering. Uh, it's just a reaction to good and bad actions. And Krishna says, I'm not responsible. So Krishna is not responsible, as he directly says. I'm not responsible for the good and bad things you do. Then obviously he's not responsible for the reactions, good and bad. And so in that sense, Krishna, what he really says in the Gita is that, what he implies, I don't punish anyone. Krishna, it's very interesting, Krishna never says in the Gita that he punishes or rewards anyone. And actually he doesn't. He simply gives people the natural consequences of what they've done, of their actions. It's like, you know, let's say you're being careless and you, you fall off a cliff in Yosemite, which seems to be what sort of a shockingly large percentage of people go to Yosemite do. They fall off mountains and cliffs, but... I mean, not most people, but enough to make you wonder. You know, to, I mean, let me just get one more picture. One last picture. So it's like, you know, if someone's careless and falls off a high place, you know, you can't curse the law of gravity. You can't curse the law of gravity because, because you were careless. And similarly, if someone... Uh, does something bad and therefore receives a reaction, which is appropriate. It's fair and appropriate because, you know, you did it, now it came back to you. And it's actually, it's actually benevolent because how else will you understand what you were doing? It's, it's sort of like cosmic sensitivity training. And so that's Krishna's statement. Krishna doesn't punish anyone. So if we look at the evil in the world, if it's the case, as it is, that we actually have many lives and we are enjoying and suffering the consequences of our own actions, if that's the case, then the fact that we are suffering in no way argues against the existence of a God. And to say, why doesn't God take away our free will and make us into machines? is not a good argument. Why doesn't he do that? Because that would be a far greater evil. And so again, just as there cannot be a square circle, it's just logically impossible. You don't have to go look for one to see if they exist. There's no such thing as having free will, but you can't do the wrong thing. And so ultimately the argument against God on the basis of suffering in the world, the argument fails. It's not a valid argument uh, because it doesn't consider 
various ways in which there could be suffering in the world and there could still be a God who's all good, all knowing and all powerful. So uh, since the topic is developing our relationship with Krishna, um, we have to have the, we have to be big enough as people, as they say. We have to have the self-honesty and courage not to blame Krishna when we suffer the results of what we've done in the past. Because it's a kind of uh, narcissism. Like, I never could have done anything bad. I couldn't possibly deserve this. But are you sure? I mean, I mean so it's... Anybody, any questions on these points? Because, yes. Is the problem with theodicy, you know, justifying the ways of God to men, specifically in the Western countries where there's, there's a rejection of karma and transmigration? In the Western countries, there's a rejection of karma? Well, in the Abrahamic religions, you don't have karma and transmigration. Well, that's why people are rejecting the Abrahamic religions. No, those, those first of all, it's interesting. I, I was watching a lecture given by a uh, scholar, actually, it, it was a uh, a Yale professor teaching a class on the Old Testament. And the professor said something very interesting, that if you actually look closely at the Hebrew of the Old Testament, it's not at all clear or necessary that the Old Testament is teaching creation ex nihilo, which means from nothing. In other words, we didn't exist before, and now we exist for the first time ever and if you look closely at the Hebrew, that's been an interpretation which caught on and which has been taught for, for thousands of years, but it's not actually what the book says. That the language of the Old Testament regarding creation is compatible with the idea that, there, that before creation, there are pre-existing things that are reworked into a creation, which is, of course, the Vedic view. However, if one believes and teaches, as generally is taught in, in, in those traditions, that this is our first life, then you are stuck. You're, you're, there's no way in the world you can rationally explain the way the world is. And in fact, it, it is so um, illogical to say that there's an all-good loving God and, and this is our first life. It's so it goes against all reason that back in the 1600s, perhaps earlier, uh, some Christians developed a philosophy called fideism. Fide means faith, like bona fide, good faith. That's what bona fide means, by the way. Bona fide means good faith. So they said that um, God has intentionally given us an irrational revelation. And the reason is because people tend to be proud. Human beings are proud of their ability to reason and therefore to humble them, God has given an irrational revelation, such as that Jesus is the only son of God or etc. I mean, there's, there's a lot of them, a lot of irrationality. I mean, original sin is just maniacal. And so, and of course, basically, you know, all the sort of, most of the educated people in the West voted with their feet and rejected the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So there's no way in the world you can say this is our first life and someone, some infant or child is just suffering terribly. And another one has, you know, the old silver spoon and silver fork and other silver things. So it just makes no sense and there's no way you can make it reasonable. So understanding the law of karma, and not only that, a very large percentage of Christians and Jews nowadays believe in karma. So the old, this old um, consensus, this old Judeo-Christian consensus, of course, is, is, rapid, is crumbling. And uh, the most, the religious group, when they take polls, that is growing most quickly is unaffiliated, as we know.
So yes, we are really more and more living in a post, you know, in an age which you could call post-Christian. Not that we're against Christianity, but but it's not. Um, yet uh, the world's very different now. Nothing against Jesus, but there have been some just sort of awful interpretations. So yes, back there. This is a good question. Earlier, I can understand where the photographer wants to get the last picture, literally through his own fault, gets his last picture. But I've seen photographs of a six-year-old Iraqi child with his arms and his legs blown off, laying in a hospital bed all wrapped up. What did the Iraqi child do to deserve the bomb that blew his arms? And his Maybe he blew somebody up. When he was six years old? No, no. I think you're not. You have to pay. You have to pay attention to the to the system. We're talking about reincarnation. We're not. We're not forcing all the the justification gotcha. within one lifetime. Gotcha. Because, for example, let's say, what if you know, what if there's a cute little baby who, in his last life, was Adolf Hitler? You know, who knows? Maybe what if, what if he did was a cute baby? I mean, you know, mothers always think their children are cute. So, yeah, so so if you look at the whole system, then it, then it makes sense. And it's still horrible. You know, even if it is karma, it, it's, it's it, in a sense, it doesn't distress us any less. Because when we see some horrible thing like that, and it is horrible, um yeah i mean how could we not be shocked by it or or horrified and and it's just like for example let's say you're a doctor and a patient comes to you who uh was a smoker and now has lung cancer and is suffering a lot the fact that that patient brought on his or her own disease doesn't lessen your compassion. So I remember when I was a student at Berkeley and uh, I had a, um, a teacher in the sociology department who was one of the probably top two or three leaders of the whole radical political movement in Berkeley. And he sort of took me under his wing. He thought I was an up and coming, I don't know, Marxist or something. And, um, you know, we sort of came from a similar background ethnically and everything. And so, um, so when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, which you may have heard of, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement and he saw me, he was walking down the street one day with his, I don't know, his wife or girlfriend. And uh, he saw me in a, you know, in uh, Dodi and Corta selling magazines, he literally, I thought he was gonna have a stroke. I mean, he, <laughs> he became so angry. I remember he was, because he was such a heavy Marxist, you know, religion is evil. And I remember when he, when he was so angry, he was like spitting as he talked and he was saying, I'll never trust anyone again. I'll never, you know, he was like, he was beside himself. He was really beside himself because he kind of, you know, I guess he was a little tasmanian or something. And um, because his point, I also, not only his point, but I heard it from other uh, like, uh, you know, Marxists and leftists that if you believe in karma, you won't feel compassion. Mm -hmm. This is what their argument. If you believe in karma and if you believe people are getting what they deserve, you won't fight against injustice, which of course is not true. Because, you know, despite the law of karma, so inevitably there will be justice, someone has to intervene and Prabhupada asked us to intervene to stop the cycle of suffering. It's like if you see two, you know, say two young people on the street, and, you know, and one of them punches the other one, he punches back and they're trading punches. Whoever threw the first punch, someone has to stop it. And so uh, it's a false argument. It's a false argument 
that uh, belief in reincarnation necessarily leads to uh, indifference to human suffering. Yes. Who's to say it's not the Iraqis did first time or not? Uh, determine that it, whether it is or not. Krishna. And Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita that we have been... What if it's not his first time? No, what if it is his first time? That's not possible. Okay. Because, yeah, it's not possible because Krishna says in the Gita that as people approach me, and of course, whatever we do, any action we take in the world, even if we're not thinking of God, because it's God's creation, it's an action toward God. For example, if I'm in the city of Tucson, uh, whatever I do, if, if I do something that's illegal, then it is violating the laws of the city of Tucson. There's a city government, there's a county government, there's state and federal laws. And so even if I you know, don't care about that, but any action I do necessarily stands in a proper or improper relationship to those laws. And so in that sense, whatever I do here, I am uh, interacting in that sense with the government. And so uh, if, let's say, the Iraqi child, it's not possible that, let's say, the Iraqi child just came from the spiritual world, you know, fell from the spiritual world, won't get into that one. And uh, although the only statement in the entire, in all of our literature, I mean, the Gita and the Bhagavatam, the only statement that directly speaks about how we came to this material world is in the fourth canto, chapter 28, text starting around 53, where Krishna twice says explicitly in Sanskrit, you rejected me and came to this world. Just very briefly, the argument that we didn't reject Krishna is ultimately absurd because if you did not consciously reject Krishna, then how could you be responsible for coming to this world? It's like if you go to a restaurant and they don't give you a menu. How could we be responsible for not accepting Krishna if we didn't know about Krishna? And why would we be sent to a material world for rejecting something we never knew about? Yes? But Bhakti Vinod Thakur in Jaiva Dharma says that we didn't come from the spiritual world with Krishna, that we came from the Tathasta or marginal. Well, first of all, first of all, uh, you'd have to show me the exact quote because a hundred times people have said that Bhakti Vinod Thakur says something, and when I look at the original language, he's saying something different. So I'd have to see it because I don't think that's literally what he says. I mean, if, you, if you're speaking from some translation, that won't work. Another point is that uh, there is no such thing as the Tattasa Shakti. There's no place described anywhere in our literature, which is, I mean, there's, there's, we hear about the Mahatattva, we hear about different planets, we hear about a spiritual world. There's no such thing as a place called the Tattasa Shakti. We are Tattasa Shakti. And so, as far as Bhakti is saying that, and this whole thing about Mahavishnu, the fact is, that there are days and nights of Brahma, which Krishna describes in the Bhagavad Gita. And as we see in the Bhagavatam, in, in the case of Narada Muni, when it, it is a uh, the, the sort of the cosmic night falls during the nighttime of Brahma, we go into the body of Vishma, Vishnu, and then come out again. And so that does not describe our ultimate origin. It's simply describing most recently where we came from. Not only that, as uh, the most important epistemological book we have, that means a book that explains how do you get valid knowledge, is Jiva Goswami's Tattva Sandarva. He wrote a book explaining the means of getting valid knowledge, and he explains that Siddhanta comes from Shastra, and the Acharyas are explaining what is also stated in Shastra. Prabhupada said this hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times, that I am speaking infallibly because and when I'm repeating what is in the Shastras. So what Krishna actually says in the, in the Bhagavatam, and I understand the Acharyas in reference, because Prabhupada also stated, these are all statements from Prabhupada, that we have these, these three sources of knowledge, Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. Prabhupada said the central authority the most important authority is Shastra.
And Prabhupada said many, many times that what distinguishes our movement from so many other movements is that we are strictly based on Shastra. So in Shastra, what Krishna says, Krishna, is that Mam Vihaya, rejecting me, you came to this world. Krishna also says, Hitwa Mam, rejecting me. And Krishna says, in the past, we lived together. We, had, we shared a home together. Krishna doesn't live in the Tattasta Shakti, first of all, because there's no place named Tattasta Shakti. It's not a place. And secondly, because that's not Krishna. And Krishna says that we live together, and the Sanskrit word he uses is okus. By the way, it's the source of the English word ecology. You might find interesting. Yes, did you have a point? No, so if we want to yeah. check that. Oh, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll end that discussion here. And you can talk to me afterwards if you want. And uh, you know, give me a donation. Because it's late. Oh, okay, yes. Yes, it's late, so we have to move on. So anyway, uh, that's that. So the, the conclusion is, the conclusion is that uh, we should have complete faith in Krishna. We should never doubt that whatever is happening to us is for our ultimate good, and, and it's somehow or other we had to go through this. It may be a hard pill to swallow. It's not easy because, uh, you know, we're not perfectly humble in our present incarnation. But somehow or other, we have to really... It's just like I had, you know, I had very good parents. I'm sure many of you have very loving parents. And I just had to accept that, you know, I may not have liked it. I may have complained about it, but I had very good parents who did what was best for me. So, uh, thank you all very much. Glendier? Four twenty-eight fifty-three around there. Okay. Oh, that's a Brahmin king. But then later, Narada Muni says that Brahmin is Krishna's god. Yeah. That's great. I didn't mean to sound challenging, please. No, no problem. I no wanted problem. to ask you so that where it says Krishna lived with us, what, what verse? Where can I see it? Fourth Canto, chapter 28, around 53, 54, 55. 428. Okay, thank you. Here's the books that are left. Should we try to sell them tonight? Or? Yeah. Okay, whatever you can't sell tonight, then we'll try. Do you want to stay for the art? Do you want, should I call? Oh, we also have the art. It'll just be like. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay. Oh, my God, we're still on Facebook. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, sorry to neglect you there.